So low-key, this podcast is about art materials. High-key, it's about love. Welcome to Material Feels, where we explore the intimate relationship between artists and their materials. I'm Katherine Monahan, your host, and I've worked with art materials my whole life. I've been flirting with clay, watercolor, and ink ever since I can remember. But I've never been able to focus on a specific medium. I guess this podcast is my way of trying. When you work with a material every day, the process becomes a conversation. I want in on that conversation. So we're going to learn about a specific material each episode, what it is, how people work with it. And we're going to spend some time with an artist, an art educator, a manufacturer, someone who connects with that material every day of their lives. Also, in a wonderful turn of events, each episode comes with an original piece of music composed by my talented collaborator, Liz Delise. I include the song at the end, so be sure to listen all the way through. You can also listen to the songs that Liz creates in tandem with the show by clicking the link I've put in the description. Our first main character, I chose one close to my heart, is the first art material I ever fell in love with. feel like clay has a personality oh yeah definitely because there's lots of different clay bodies to work with in each clay body you know porcelain versus stoneware or really groggy clay versus a smooth clay i mean each clay is different you know some clays are very forgiving you can push and pull the shape some clays are not forgiving and so each clay kind of dictates its own you know purpose when you're working with it you can be loose carefree or you can be very specific and precise This is Matthew. He's been working with clay for over a decade. He runs a children's ceramic studio where he works with kids and clay every single day. I met Matthew when I was biking by his studio one day on my way to a meeting for one of my jobs. I was juggling a bunch of different jobs at the time, as many of us artsy types who can't settle on one thing often do. And as I was pedaling by, the studio sign caught my eye. So I hopped off my bike and poked my head in to see if they were hiring. They were and I ended up working as an instructor with Matthew for a few years. So when I was putting together this episode and thinking about people with a special, enduring, intense relationship with Clay, I knew exactly who I wanted to talk to. I first started working with Clay in 2006. It was in college. Um, Took an introductory class, fell in love with it. I had gone to school for photography and I'd sort of hit a wall was sort of bored, wasn't learning much, and the clay studio was the exact opposite of a darkroom. Instead of being alone by yourself in a dust-free environment, you were in a well-lit place with lots of people. It was messy, and it was just about as far away from the darkroom as you could get, and I just fell in love with it. What was your first ceramics teacher like? His name was Clifton Pearson, and he taught a summer class. Uh, he was the, the dean of the department, or the, at least the department chair, I can't remember, but he taught like a six-week class, and it covered everything from you know, hand building, wheel throwing, mold making, glaze making. It was all of it. So it was sort of a crash course into all things clay. What was your favorite thing to do in that class? Like the first time when you were like, oh, wow, I really like this. I really enjoyed hand building. It was sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, it was magic to be able to manifest something, to think of it and make it right in front of you. That was great. But I really gravitated towards the potter's wheel. I had had... Uh, a short background in mechanical work, in like machine work, and working with 
steel, aluminum, working on a lathe, very similar to working on a potter's wheel. So the difference is that when you're working with metal, it takes hours and hours to make a shape, but the potter's wheel was instantaneous. So I sort of had a natural instinct for the potter's wheel, but I just really loved sitting at the wheel and sort of, you know, time warping. You just sort of just lose yourself on the potter's wheel where your brain doesn't do anything. You're just there physically working with your hands and then, you know, hours go by. I loved it. Hearing Matthew tell his story about how he fell in love with clay reminds me of how I got into it. I like to borrow a term from the film industry, meet cute. A meet cute is that spontaneous moment when two characters first meet, and it's the moment that leads to the development of a romantic relationship between them. Just listening to the sound of clay being centered on the wheel takes me back. I'm 13 years old, and it's my first year at boarding school. I ended up in a ceramics class because the painting class I had signed up for was full. And I didn't even really know what ceramics was, so I was pretty pissed. I had been counting on that painting class, though now I can't remember why it was so important to my master plan. My ceramics teacher was a man named Walter Rebetz. He was actually the photography teacher, but I guess they needed someone in the clay studio, and he knew how to work with clay. He always had this twinkle in his eye, and he taught us how to center clay on the wheel in what I thought at the time was a roundabout way. What is centering? Centering is when you take a rough lump of clay and put it on the potter's wheel, and once the clay begins spinning, you have to get it perfectly round in the very middle of the wheel before you can start to change its shape. And so centering the clay is, in my opinion, the hardest part of the whole process, and it's the thing that takes the longest to master. Um, and so that first step is sitting down, you know, being braced and making contact with the clay and holding still so the clay becomes centered. In my mind, Mr. Abetz refused to help us center. That is, he refused to do it for us. He would tell us how to do it, model it for us, but he wouldn't put his hands on our clay and do it for us, which is what a lot of us wanted. Like Matthew mentioned, centering clay is one of the first steps when you are throwing on the potter's wheel, and it can be really frustrating. A lot of people want to skip it and get to the good stuff, meaning making something they can take home and show their parents. But Mr. Abetz was insistent. If we tried enough times, we would figure it out. He told us that learning to center could take up to a year. People were shocked. How are we supposed to get an A when all of us were failing miserably at the very first step? If you're a perfectionist, it really comes out when you're trying to center clay on the wheel and failing at it. There's no hiding from that rotating mound of earth. It's either smooth and centered right in the middle of the wheel, or it's unapologetically, undeniably wobbly. But Mr. Abetz wasn't concerned when our projects came out lopsided. If you think something is ugly, throw 10 more just like it, he would say then you'll really learn to appreciate it. After a few months, I actually figured out how to center and clay became my addiction. I even got my school to accept clay as my winter sport so that I could spend more time in the studio. Mr. Rebetz's classroom became my first home away from home. What does clay bring to you every day? Um, that is a really good question. What does it bring to me? Well, as an artist and business owner, clay is the lifeblood of what I do. Clay is the main attraction. Clay is what brings kids and adults and people to the studio. So, I mean, without that, obviously we wouldn't exist. But for me personally, clay represents 
a medium that's based on transformation, transition. And so every day being able to transform something, to take a ball of clay and transform it into a pot or take you know a blob of clay and make it into a sculpture. I feel like every day has that potential, no matter where you are when you wake up or when you start. Once you enter the studio, you could transform it into something better or you know, you could just work through things. And I like the clay has that as a part of it. It's just, it's as I remember my meet cute with clay back in the ninth grade, I realized that clay was meeting specific needs for me, just like in any intimate relationship. I was really homesick, living away from home for the first time. Being with clay brought me peace made me feel at home. But art supplies are wonderfully polyamorous and the needs that one material meets for one person can change depending on personality and circumstance. For me, peace. For Matthew, transformation. These are pretty positive words, but it's not always sunshine and butterflies. Like any relationship, there are some dark times too and materials can make space for that. As an art educator, Matthew has this exclusive window, this unique opportunity to see clay impacting people in different ways during different stages of their lives. Every kid is different, every person is different, but for me, the biggest, most immediately noticeable impact is on spectrum children, to see children that are very distracted, very sort of scattered, and to see them suddenly become quiet and focused. Uh, on one thing, it's it's really wonderful to see that. And you can see in those moments how clay can, like I mentioned, pull you into you know the present moment. And so for for children who are not often in the present moment, seeing them make contact with the clay and suddenly just become, you know, in a trance almost. They just are quiet, they're focused, maybe even they're listening. I hear a lot of feedback from parents about how, like, oh my God, I can't believe they were all listening to you or they were focused and I've never seen them you know, be that silent or be that attentive to, you know, someone else talking to them and just to know that it's the clay that's doing it. You know, it's the medium. It's not, you know, some sort of magic spell we're casting and it's not, you know, necessarily our skills as educators. It's really just the medium. It's just the clay. You know, once they're there and it, they're touching it, it's responding, everything else kind of fades away. When you say that clay responds to them, like, what, is that, what does that mean? Well... I feel like holding a pencil and making a mark, um, you know, there's a response. You know, you're holding something, you're doing something. When you're painting and you're moving color around, you know, something's happening, um, there's a response there. But for clay, when you've got a squishy lump of clay and you poke your finger into it, it makes a hole. You know, when you squish it with your hand, it changes its shape. And so it responds. And when you're on the potter's wheel, uh, I repeat a lot to children that clay doesn't really respect strength. It respects patience. Um, so when you're working on the wheel and you, you touch it very gently, it changes shape, it responds. But if you jam your finger into it, it just pokes a hole in the side, you know. And if you're working on a pot and you want to change its shape, you can't just pull as hard as you can towards yourself and make the clay, like, you know, stretch out really wide or just rip. But if you go really slow and take your time, you can make a cylinder into a, a big wide bowl. Or you can take a big wide bowl and slowly smush it back into a cylinder. But you just can't do it instantly. So... That's something I see every Matthew day. tells me about one student in particular. She's been coming to Kids in Clay for years. If she's having a bad day, she comes in here in a bad mood, and maybe she's being a little too heavy-handed, and the clay doesn't respond. And it, it sort of worsens the bad day if, you, if she allows it. 
I've seen her over the years get to where she can sort of control that. And if she's in a bad mood, the clay will make her feel better. And to see her be able to quiet her mind, quiet her emotions, and throw a pot very slowly and carefully, I can see that transform her. And it's because the clay is responding to what she's doing to it. And sometimes, even if the storm rages on, there is liberation. worked here and I've seen students get frustrated and like sort of lose their bearings and what do you, what do you do in that instance you let them go out in the garden and do like what <laughs> well you know failure is a big part of the learning process so we don't um, I should say that the program here is very open-ended you know we have a loose structure um, and we don't have you know guided projects for, for students and there comes a point when we might recognize that this is not going to work. You know, the project they're moving towards is going to end poorly. But we have to let them do that. And that's a difficult thing as an educator to let someone fail, but it's important. And so sometimes when kids are working on a pot and, you know, they want a certain thing and it's just not working out for them and, you know, maybe they fire it, maybe they even glaze it and it's hideous and they're they're embarrassed by it and, you know, they don't they don't want to keep it. A lot of times, especially the younger students, you know, elementary and middle school kids will be like, well, what do I do with this, you know? Uh, and we just say, well, let's smash it. And a lot of times they respond immediately with just wide eyes, like, really? We can do this? This is allowed? And I say, yeah. So I give them safety glasses and a hammer and gloves, protective gear, and I let them go outside and smash it. It's, I don't want to say a weekly occurrence, but it happens fairly often. As we were chatting, I remembered I still had a piece from when I had worked at Kids in Clay over two years ago. And it was sitting on a shelf. And every time I would stop by and visit, I would see it out of the corner of my eye. It was this large reddish face, and I had tried to paint the faces of the moon on it. Then I tried writing on it in some, like, Nordic runes. Uh, it, di- it did not come out the way I wanted. I dipped it in yellow. That did not help. Uh, I had no love for this face, and our conversation gave me an idea. These are? Don't smash these because they're mine. I made them. Yeah, no, this is, I would only ever smash my own pot. You are going to smash that? Yeah, that pot right there. You don't like it? No. But before you liked it. I liked it when I first made it, and then I kept on doing stuff to it, and it never worked out the way I wanted. Smash it. That was so satisfying. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I made a mess. Well, that's half the fun. Now I cleaned it up. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah, because yeah, the one you got, you got the Yeah. Smashing that thing felt good. I really appreciate that aspect of clay and ceramics because, you know, if you do a bad drawing, you can erase it. You can crinkle up the paper and throw it away. It's a good feeling. But when you smash a pot, that pot no longer exists. And to see it smash, to feel that release of all the work you put into it, it's actually a really like wonderful thing to feel. And I get a certain amount of catharsis watching them go through that process. And a lot of times they'll see like, oh, can I smash more? <laughs> like, is there something else I can smash? It's like, well, let's not make things just to break them. But, you know, uh, I should say that we always clean up afterwards. So, you know, it's a, a big part of it. We don't just let them smash stuff and then Some of you might be thinking, what's the point then? Fail, smash, repeat? What's the point of art at all if you're just going to destroy it? Do you feel like all these kids are going to grow up to be fine artists? No. No, not at all. Um, I myself, before I 
committed to art school was a, a handyman. I was a maintenance man. And so I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be an artist my whole life. Uh, I sort of found the power in art making and how it can help sort of help anyone and everyone. And so my approach to it is like, yeah, I'm happy when kids leave and they go off to art school or, you know, if they want to pursue an artistic life, but I don't ever push that or I'm not ever expecting it. And some of the most talented, amazing artists here have left to pursue other things. And I just want to be supportive of that. But I think that art is something that you don't have to validate with a degree or a career to really enjoy it. You can really use it, you know, at any time. You can, art making can be your own personal practice. And the catharsis of expressing and making art is something that can benefit everyone. Adults tend to have baggage <laughs> um, and they have preconceived notions where kids are sort of a blank slate a lot of times. So you can expose them to the medium and they just kind of run with it where adults might have preconceived notions of their own abilities. Like I said earlier, one of the reasons I started Material Feels was to get in on the conversations between artists and their materials. But sometimes those creative conversations might be lying dormant or they're waiting to be started. Maybe you have a relationship with a particular material that got cut short, interrupted. A lot of creative people have stories like that. When you told your third grade teacher you wanted to be an artist when you grew up and they laugh. Or in college, relatives asking, an art major? Hmm, good luck getting a job. Maybe a job got in the way. Or an unexpected life change. So yes, Material Feels is about honoring the intimate relationship between artists and their materials. But it's also about reactivating creative conversations a lot of us have on hold. It's about making time to listen to the materials that speak to us, connect with them, learn from them. What does clay typically teach people? Well, it is a humbling medium, I feel like. Um, one of the, the things that really drew me into it was that clay is so adaptable, and it really can be anything you want. It can be precise and fine and clean and smooth, or it can be rough and chaotic and messy. You know, it can be everywhere in between. And so if you were to pick any one particular thing in clay, one kind of genre, one style, it's, it's endless once you dive into that. So if you wanted to be a potter, you could just throw pots forever and you could explore infinite shapes. If you're a sculptor, you know, you could, if you're an abstract sculptor, you know, there's no limits on anything that you choose. So I, you know, I really like that. I really like that it can be adaptable and it can kind of shift around and change for people. While I was making this first episode, Mr. Abetz, my high school ceramics teacher I told you about, who taught me how to center, he passed away. Every time I wedge and center clay, every time I tell someone about clay, every time I eat dinner out of my favorite bowl, or when I can't sleep at night and I visualize centering on the potter's wheel, I'm transported back to that classroom. I hear Mr. Abetz's voice telling stories and sharing words of wisdom about art and life in general. So this episode is dedicated to you, Mr. Abetz. Thank you.
This episode of Material Feels was written and produced by me, your host, Catherine Monahan. Woo! I write about art materials for a living, and I make art for fun. Thank you, Matthew, for hanging out in a supply closet with me and talking about clay, and for taking a chance on me that day when I walked into the studio looking for a job. Shout out to the UC Berkeley Advanced Media Institute, where the staff at their podcast bootcamp taught me how to record, edit, and write for audio, and to my friends, family members, and podluckers who have been asking about material feels and keeping me motivated to finish episode one, which low-key, I kind of worried that I never would. Next time on Material Feels, we'll be getting to know a character who is as natural as it gets. Simultaneously delicate and strong, they are particularly nuanced, depending on how you handle them. And I'm extra stoked because we are going to get a chance to visit the material at its very source. Okay, teeny tiny hint. At some point on our journey next time, there will be sheep. And it won't be random. It, it has to do with it. That's it. You give me the feels. The material feels. Cause we are living in a material world. And I am a material. Meow, 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 meow. Material. Material. Wouldn't that just be so disappointing if that was actually the original piece of music I had talked about in the beginning? But no, it was just a bloopers reel because that's my style. And... Actually, the episode is for real, for real over, and it's time to close out with an original piece of music composed by the incredible Liz Delise. It's called Hudson Glows for You, Walter's Song.